when you know you have to preach a specific message, you do not know how people are going to respond to it. And um, the biggest struggle, at least for me, is uh, you want to be known as a nice guy. Um, so that means sometimes you have to uh, step around certain things that needs to be addressed. So the prayer kind of solidified that this is what God wants me to speak on. And I pray by God's grace that you guys will understand the points of the message. We are living in interesting times, amen? And I'll be ignorant to think, knowing that I'm an African-American male, living in the United States of America, that there are certain issues that I face in this society and in this world. I attended an all-black high school at Evans High School. I am now attending Oakwood University at Historical Black College to finish my BA in church leadership. So there's a distinctness about me that only my black culture was able to teach me and how to conduct myself the way I think and the way that I, you know, go about life. And as I was preparing this sermon throughout this week, I was like, Lord, what is it that you want me to speak on? And the thought came that my life matters. My life matters, but not for the reason why you may think. And as we go through this study, we're going to go through a lot of Bible scriptures. We're going to go through a lot of uh, quotes from the spirit of prophecy. So I, I hope that you got your notepads and your pens ready because I'm going to go through a lot of things and going to build a case as to why my life matters here today. Before we begin, I ask that you may not only keep myself in prayers, but I ask that you may pray for yourselves that, the, that your heart may be receptive to the message, that the Holy Spirit may communicate the message that is needed and what you need to hear this morning. But um, again, before we begin, let's start with a word of prayer and we'll go into God's word this morning. Father God, I just want to thank you again for bringing us safely through another week. And Father, not too many people are able to utter that prayer. We're living in very interesting times, Lord. We're seeing uh, one tragedy after another taking place right before our eyes. And Father, it seems like we can't even catch a break. But Lord, this is why you instituted the Sabbath, because now we can break from the norm and enter into your rest. Think about your mercy, your goodness, and your compassion towards us. But Lord, as I speak the words this morning, I pray that you may remove me from the sight of men. Hide me behind the cross that your son may be uplifted and be seen. And that the words that I speak, Lord, may not be mine, but the words that are spoken from above. I love you. We love you. And we ask that you may dwell with us now with your presence. We thank you again for hearing and answering our prayers. For I ask this in the name that is above all names, our Lord, our Savior, our friend, Jesus Christ. Amen. The sermon today is entitled, Hashtag, My Life Matters. My Life Matters. It began a few years back when a young man by Trayvon Martin was shot by George Zimmerman. As this young man came back from the gas station with his right hand, a, an iced tea in his left hand, a bag of Skittles, and wearing a hoodie, minding his business. And as he was walking through a neighborhood where he once was supposed to be, he was labeled and stereotyped. And after an altercation, this young man, life, perished. Not for anything that he did, but simply because the way that he looked. And from this tragedy that happened not even 15 minutes away from here, there in Sanford, 
that started what we call the Black Lives Movement. And you would think that it would get better, but we see the life of Eric Gardner at the age of 43 was killed after he was put in an illegal chokehold for 15 seconds by a police officer for allegedly selling loose cigarettes. Gardner said 11 times, I can't breathe. And it was held down by several officers on the sidewalk. And the officers involved in this incident was not charged. Then we go to the life of John Crawford at the age of 22, was shot and killed by a police officer at a Walmart in Ohio. There didn't appear to be any confrontation with the police, but he was unarmed, but he was shot for holding a toy BB gun. The officers involved in the shooting were not charged. We see Walter Scott at the age 50 was shot by a police officer while running away from a traffic stop because of a broken taillight. And the officer claimed that Scott was taking his stun gun, but when video surfaced, we see only Scott running away, his back turned from the officer, and there he was fired, shot, and killed. Unarmed, Michael Brown at the age of 18 was shot and killed by the Ferguson police officer, Darren Wilson. And in November, the grand jury declined to charge Wilson in the fatal shooting. And it sparked protests, some of them that became violent, and in Ferguson and across the nation. It would not charge Wilson for the shooting, even after they investigated the case. Tamir Rice, at the age of 12, was shot, killed by Cleveland police after officers mistook his toy gun for a real weapon. And the two officers that was involved were not charged. Then we move to the life of Freddie Gray. At the age of 25, died of a spinal cord injury a week after he was arrested by Baltimore police. And the officers involved in the arrest were placed on a leave and the state attorney announced that they finally have been criminally charged in connection with Gray's homicide. And as I came back from Hawaii, not even 12 hours as I come back to the mainland, I hear about the shooting of Alton Sterling, a man who was selling CDs in front of the gas station and the police officers didn't question, but aggressively came to him and pinned him down. And there we see in video, live footage, shot in cold blood. And just something in my soul told me that things are going to be different after seeing this video. And, and there was sectors in, in the news media outlet and people on social media saying, well, if he would have just done this, if he would have just done that. And then all of a sudden we come to the story of Fernando Castell, a young man who did everything that he was supposed to do and still got shot in front of his four-year-old daughter and the mother of his child. We're living in very interesting times where lives doesn't seem to matter. We understand the shooting there in Charleston, North Carolina, where a group of believers came there at midweek during the midweek to worship their creator. And a young man came and shot them up in cold blood solely because of the color of their skin. We're familiar with the situation that happened, the travesty that happened here in Orlando. Well, Orlando, a place that is known as the happiest place on earth, all of a sudden became a city that became a, a hashtag trend. 54 young men and women died, shot and killed solely because of their sexual preference. And we're familiar with the situation there in France. We see that 128 people were killed during the night because of gun and bomb attacks there in Paris. And not even two weeks ago, we see that in Nice, Paris, 84 dead 
after a truck crashes into the crowd. And you would think, when I created this PowerPoint presentation for the service today, I thought that this was going to be the great tragedy, right? This is it. But then we hear about the Dallas shooting. We hear about the New Orleans shooting. And then we hear about the situation there in Miami. And we're seeing that it's one tragedy after another after another. And I understand as minorities, as, as the black community, we are crying out and we're seeing that all of this injustice is happening and we're asking the question that the psalmist asks in Psalm 13. If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 13. And I want you to hear the cry of David. In Psalms chapter 13, beginning of verse 1, we'll read the chapter. There's only a few verses, so don't get freaked out. In Psalm chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, we see David utter this question. And in verse 1, he asks, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? How, having sorrow in my heart daily, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. We see the agony and the pain of David's heart. But as he's focusing on the tragedies around him, notice where he shifts his focus to in verse 5. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And we see this continuous cry of how long being found throughout scriptures. Revelation chapter 6 verse 10 as we look at seals that are being broken. And God's people are crying out for justice because they've been persecuted for 1260 years. And notice in Revelation 6 verse 10, the cry of God's people. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood and those who dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord? The prophet Habakkuk uttered the same words as he was dealing with the issues of his day as well. And in Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 to verse 7, he cries out the same words, O Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me and there is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth for the wicked surrounded the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Look among the nations and watch and be utterly astonished. For I will work a work in your days, says the Lord, which you would not believe, though I would have told you. We see the cry of David we see the cry of God's people in Revelation chapter 6. We see the cry of the prophet Habakkuk asking the same question. How long will we continue to see injustice happen in our life? Lord, do you not hear our cry? And they have, as they're crying out to the Lord, it seems that there's pain and heartache in their hearts. But you see, what God has given us and what God has given this church is a prophetic lens. When I see these tragedies happen, 
the carnal nature initially wants to get upset for those who are causing these harms. But when I study the Bible, I have to keep in mind that I have to focus and I have to focus my attention on the prophetic vision that God has given his people. See, if we would have read, if we study and read his word, we see that in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus uttered some words, some signs that would take place. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. We see that Jesus in chapter 23, he departs from the temple. And in verse 3, he sits on the Mount of Olives. His disciples come to him and they say to him privately, verse 3, Tell us when these things shall be and what will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age. Jesus then says in verse 4, and Jesus answered and said to them, what? Take heed that no one does what? Deceive you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and shall deceive many. And then Jesus says, and you will hear wars and rumors of wars and see that they are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And then in verse 7, Jesus says the following words. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in what type of places? Various places. That word various is quite interesting in the Greek. What Jesus is saying is that you're going to see kingdoms rise against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in areas that are very populated with people. Are you following so when Jesus uttered the words nation, when you simply look up the Greek in the original, the word nations means ethnos. What is the word? Ethnos, which refers to a people of the same race or nationality who share a distinctive culture. And according to Jesus, one sign at the end of the times is that there will be an increase in the struggle between ethnicities. And Jesus says that this will continue to arise in areas that are populated with people. Baltimore, Dallas. When we see these things happening, we're seeing prophecy being fulfilled right before our eyes. Jesus predicted this thousands of years ago, that you will see race rise against race. You will see kingdoms fighting against kingdoms, earthquakes, diseases, pestilences happening in areas where there's a lot of people congregated. But Jesus continues our saying in verse 12, and because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will do what? Will grow cold. Why will lawlessness increase? It's quite simple. God's law is a standard that we all should live by. And the law of God is a transcript of his character, which is a character of love. So when we reject God's love, his law, lawlessness will then continue to increase. And the opposite of love is what? Hate. So you will see hate grow instead of love. This is what Jesus predicted will happen in the times that you and I will be living in. But Jesus even goes further in verse 37. But as in the days of Noah, so shall it be before the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, how was it in the days of Noah? I'm glad you asked. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. This is why a man can shoot another man in cold blood and not feel remorse. This is why you can see injustices happen and people make excuses as to why this thing happened to this person. Because the, every intent and the thoughts were only evil continually. And Jesus says that this will happen before I come. 
So when I see people getting upset and worked up over something that it is true, we're seeing injustice, we have to keep in mind that God predicted these things were going to happen. We're focusing our energy in the wrong direction, brothers and sisters. In the book Education, C states, at the same time, anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law. How many laws? All law. Not only the divine law of God, but also what type of law? Human law, the laws of the land. The centralizing of wealth and power, the vast combination for the enriching of the few at the expense of many. Are we not seeing that? The rich get richer, the poor gets poorer. She says the combinations of the poor classes for the defense of their interests and claims, the spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed. Are we not seeing that today? The worldwide decimation of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution, all are tending to involve the whole world and a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. Isn't it interesting that all of the attacks that are happening in the world today is happening in France and the United States of America? So she continues, such are the influences to be met by the youth of today. Youth, you will continue to see these things happen in your generation. This is what Ellen White states. She says, to stand amidst such upheavals, they are now to lay the foundations of character. So what are the young people supposed to do during this time? She says, in every generation and in every land, the true foundation and pattern for character building have been the same. What is it? Thou shalt love thy Lord thy God with all thy heart and thy neighbor as thyself. The great principle made manifest in the character and life of our Savior is the only secure foundation and the only safeguard. Do we have God's law in our hearts? When we're seeing all of these tragedies happening, what is being demonstrated in our action, in our words? Is it the love of God? Is it loving our neighbors as ourselves? Or is it anger and bitterness to what they did to my people? But you see, we ask the question, why would God allow all of these tragedies to happen? Well, you see, God doesn't take blame for the things that are happening. John chapter 10, verse 10 tells us the thief does not come except to do what? To steal and to kill and to... So we have to understand that there is an enemy, a thief, who wants to steal your joy, who wants to see you dead, and wants to see you killed. But notice the very next phrase, I have come. Who is I? The great I am, Jesus Christ. I have come that they may have life and they may have it much more abundantly. Jesus says that there's a thief that's seeking to destroy. A thief who wants to take away your peace. A thief who wants to take away the security of your salvation. Jesus came to give what? Church, life, and to give it much more abundantly. Jesus can continue to utter these same words in Matthew chapter 13. Let's go there. Matthew chapter 13, we know the parable of the wheats and the tares. And I want you to understand a principle here in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. In Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed a good seed in his field. Now, who is this man that's sowing the good seed? It's no other than Jesus Christ himself. What is the good seed? That's what he plants. What is the field? It's the world. So follow what Jesus is saying. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares amongst the wheat 
and he went his way. But when the grain has sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So we're seeing that the Son of Man is planting nothing but good seeds in the world. But as men slept, an enemy came and he planted bad seeds. He planted tares. And as it continued to cultivate, we see that the both seeds uh, formulate and we see that there's tares and there's wheat. And then in verse 27, so the servants of the owner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in the field? In other words, Jesus, didn't you only plant good in the world? How then do we see tares? Jesus says in verse 28, an enemy has done this. An enemy has done this. And when you read the parable, you see that the reaping wasn't done by the servants. It was done by God himself. So that tells me that the evil that we see is not our duty to try to rip up the tares with the wheats. That's not our job. That is the working of God himself. What we see Jesus saying is that an enemy has done this. And because an enemy has done this, that tells me that the police department isn't my biggest enemy. That tells me that ISIS isn't my biggest threat. My biggest threat is Satan himself, for he is the one who's causing all of these tragedies that are happening. Because in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Listen, brothers and sisters, what breaks my heart is that professed followers of Jesus will rally against another set of people, a set of organization, not the devil who is doing this. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against something that we cannot see. And Jesus is reminding us here this morning that an enemy has done this. So when these tragedies happen, we have to remind ourselves that we are in a spiritual warfare because an enemy has done this. It's not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. You see, man looks at the exterior, but man looks at the heart. What we see color, God sees the heart. See, we see, oh, it's the white man, it's the black man, it's a, a Muslim, it's a, whoever it is. And God's saying, you're focusing on the wrong thing. I'm looking at this man's heart and I'm realizing my law is not written in his heart. You're not battling against this opposition. You're battling against wickedness and darkness and principalities that run and govern this world. Brothers and sisters, we must awaken up from the times that we're living in. We're not wrestling against skin. We're wrestling against sin. But does the Bible teach us principles that you and I should follow when we see injustices happen here in America? And the answer is yes, but it's not what you think. I want you to notice in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, the very first phrase is to do what? Learn to do. After we learn to do good, we seek justice, we rebuke the oppressor, then we defend the fatherless, and then we plead for the widow. So before we start seeking justice, before we start rebuking the oppressors, we first must learn to do good. 
You know, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9 through 10, tells us the same thing. He iterates the same principle here. Thus says the Lord. Who says it? Thus says the who? So who is speaking right now? God. He says true justice. Well, Lord, what is true justice? He says to show mercy and compassion. Everyone, everyone to his brothers. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. So does God want us to execute true justice? Yes or no? But what is true justice according to Zechariah 7 verse 9 through 10? It's to show mercy and to what people? Just a different sect of people or to everyone? It's to follow the principles to love your neighbor as thyself. Paul states in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 15 through 18, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your opinion. Oh, whew, listen, I've seen so many Facebook posts and so many tweets about what we should be doing and how we should rally together and execute this plan and this plan. And here it is that he says, be not wise in your own opinion. Do not repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for the good things in the sight of all men. And if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peacefully with all men. In Isaiah chapter 58, we see the prophet Isaiah illustrating these principles. Again, he highlighting these points that we should execute justice. We should call out the oppressor. But first and foremost, we must learn to do good, to show mercy, to show compassion, and to live peacefully amongst all men. That is what we have gathered from the word of God. And in Isaiah chapter 58, we see beginning in verse 1. We love this part of the chapter. Ooh, we love this part. We love this Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Oh, we love to call out the wrong. Oh, we love to call out the injustice. Oh, we love to tell people how bad and wicked they are. But I want you to notice verse 6. Because Jesus tells us of a specific fast that you and I should be encountering here and now. And verse 6, is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness? to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? It is not to share your bread with the hungry, that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out. When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then notice what happens once we learn to do good, once we learn to execute true justice, show mercy and compassion to all brothers and sisters. Notice what the blessing that God will give to you and I. He says, then in verse 8, your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall bring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then notice what happens. Notice what happens when we cry out to the Lord. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. And then you shall cry, and he will say, we are crying out to God Almighty to relieve us from this oppression and to relieve us from all the bad that is happening. And Jesus says, you haven't even learned to do good. You're crying out to me, but you haven't even fed the homeless. You haven't even covered the naked. You haven't even pleaded for the widow, and you're crying out to me about injustice? 
He says, when we execute these principles, when we cry out to the Lord, he says, I will hear you. When you ask him where he is, he says, here I am. Jesus has already established the principles that you and I should be governed by here and now. In a world where there is suffering is the norm, God has needs young heroes who are willing to be his active hands. Heroes who enthusiastically and solemnly embrace the calling to serve others. That is the call of the youth for today. And you know who embodied these principles? Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, we see that Jesus, in his whole life ministry, lived out his life by the principles that we just read. In Luke chapter 4, 18, it says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Who is me? Who is Jesus referring to? Himself. Because he has anointed me. Who is he? His Father has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Preach the gospel. He, the Father, has sent me to do what? Heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Oppressed from what? From sin. Christ demonstrated these principles that we just read in Isaiah, in the book of Romans, in Zechariah, in Isaiah 58. Jesus embodied these principles in his life. I want you to notice the book Steps to Christ as it gives commentary to this very verse. It says the thorn and the thistles, the difficulties and trials that make his life one of toil and care were appointed for his good as a part of the training needful in God's plan for his uplifting from the ruin and degradation that sin has wrought. When we go through trials, when we go through difficulties, we shouldn't be crying out to the Lord, relieve me from them, but God is utilizing these tools so that way he can work out his plan for us. It continues by saying love, mercy, and compassion were revealed in his every act of his life. His heart went out in tender sympathy to the children of men. He took on human nature that he might reach man's wants. Jesus did not suppress one word of truth, amen? But he uttered it always in love. He exercised the greatest tact and thoughtful, kind attention in his intercourse with the people. He was never rude. He never needlessly spoke a severe word. He never gave a needless pain to a sensitive soul. He did not censor human weakness. He spoke the truth, but he always in love. Jesus denounced hypocrisy. He denounced unbelief. Jesus denounced iniquity, but tears in his voice as he uttered his sketching rebukes. His life was one of self-denial and thoughtful care of others. Every soul. How many souls? Every soul was precious in his eyes. While he ever bore himself with divine dignity, he bowed with the tenderest regard to every member of the family of God. In all men, he saw fallen souls whom it was his mission to save. Christ was to identify himself with the interests and the needs of humanity. He who was one with God was linked himself with the children of men by ties that are never to be broken. The more we study the character in the light of the cross, the more we see mercy, the more we see tenderness, the more we see forgiveness blended with equity and justice, and the more clearly we will discern the innumerable evidences of a love that is infinite and a tender pity surpassing a mother's yearing sympathy 
for her wayward child. You see, Christ lived out the principles of his kingdom here on earth. His kingdom was to save all men. His focus wasn't to call out the corrupt government in his day. His job wasn't just to save black lives and Jewish lives and Samaritan lives. His job was to save all men. And he showed compassion. He showed love in his dealings with men. And because Jesus laid out these principles, that tells me, regardless of what Barack Obama says, there will never be change in the White House. That tells me that regardless of what Donald Trump says that America will be great again, it will never happen. Why? Because the government is corrupted. And we see that in Revelation chapter 13, that the lamb-like beast will speak like a dragon. So that tells me that we understand that the government isn't going to be the solution to our problems. The only solution to man's problems is Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus says in John 18, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then they would, my servants will fight. And brothers and sisters, I have to be honest, I'm seeing so many people exerting their energy to fight for a world that we know is going to go up in flames. We're talking about, oh, vote for this person, vote for that person. We should activate laws to try to initiate certain treaties. And brothers and sisters, the law of man will never fix with the issues that we are dealing with in the heart. This is why Jesus says, you're focusing on the wrong kingdom. Listen, if I told you to fight more for this kingdom, he told us that he would tell us to fight for it. But he says, my kingdom is not from hence. I want you to notice in the book, Desire of Ages, page 314. And to be honest with you, I just added this quote two days ago. As I was reviewing and as I was studying, this quote found in Desire of Ages, chapter 55, in page 314, stood out to me. And I want you to read this with an open heart. The government under which Jesus lived was corrupt and oppressive. Are we living in a day and age where the government is corrupt and oppressive? On every hand, we're crying abuses. Are we not seeing abuses happening in our world today? Exhortation, are we not seeing that? Intolerance, are we not seeing that? And grinding cruelty, do we not see that? Jesus lived in the same government as today, meaning that if Jesus was living in 2016, this is what Jesus would have done. Yet the Savior attempted no civil reforms. He attacked no national abuses, nor condemned the national enemies. He did not interfere with the authority and the administration of those in power. He, who was our example, kept aloof from earthly governments. Not because, notice, notice, not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures. Brothers and sisters, before we call ourselves Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Conservatives, and Liberals, we have to understand that we are first and foremost followers of Jesus Christ. And if this was the example that Jesus led and lived by, then guess what we have to do? We have to live by that same example. So as young people, as a church, as an organization, we shouldn't be politicking to see who's going to relieve us from this oppression when we see that Jesus says that it's not going to amount to anything. I love the spirit of prophecy because not only does she rebuke, but she gives counsel on what we should do. She says to be efficient. Do you want to be efficient? To be efficient, the cure must reach men individually and must regenerate in 
the heart. Jesus did not waste his time trying to fight a government that he knew was not going to change. He understood that the issue and his main focus here on earth was to change the hearts of men. For sin is the cause root of all of our problems. So Jesus didn't focus on who we should vote for and who should we, what, he didn't focus on, he focused on the salvation of mankind. So what we're gonna do is gonna take some examples, look at some examples of how Jesus dealt with the social injustice in his day, okay? And before we begin, we're going to turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 29. Luke chapter 10 at verse 29. Before we begin, Desire of Ages talks about this parable in page 497. She says this, in the story of the Good Samaritan, Christ illustrates the nature of true religion. He shows that it consists not in what? Systems, creeds, or rights, but in the performance of loving deeds in bringing the greatest good to others in genuine goodness. So as we read this parable, we want to keep in mind that Jesus illustrates this point to show us that true religion does not consist of system, creeds, or rights, but in performance and loving deeds to others. So in Luke chapter 10 and verse 29, Jesus dealt with these issues during the day. You see, there was a race tension in God's day and Jesus' day as well. See, the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. They didn't like anyone who did not represent their culture or their race. So Jesus addresses this problem in this parable. And in chapter 10, in verse 29, we see Jesus answering a question by a lawyer. So he's rebuked. He knows that he ought to do right because Jesus says, love thy neighbor as thyself. And if you know that's the principle, you should be living by to it. See, he had an intellectual knowledge of the truth, but the truth did not convert his heart. So then he tried to justify himself by saying, well, who's my neighbor? So then Jesus answered the question. Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man, and, and Jesus didn't specify what type of man this was. It could have been a Jew. It could have been a Levite. It could have been a Samaritan. It could have been anyone. Jesus didn't specify the man, but he did address how, how his people was addressing this man's needs. Notice. Then Jesus has said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell amongst the thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded, departed, leaving him half dead. Did we not already kind of hear that same language in Isaiah 58? Feed the homeless, you know, feed those who are hungry, clothe the naked, right? So... Now by chance, I love how the Bible says things. Now by chance, just so happened, that a certain priest came down that road. Uh-oh, what would be the priest equivalent to today? An elder, a pastor, a conference official, you know, a church member. He sees this beaten man, and he sees, he's a uh-oh, <laughs> priest lives matter, and he walks on the other side. Then as he comes along, there was a likewise a Levite when he arrived at the place, came and looked, and he said, Well, blue lives matter, and walked under the other side. Oh, but then Jesus, he who Jesus gave him a right hook. He says, But by certain Samaritan was as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Oh, what do you think the people was hearing? The people that was hearing this parable, what do you think was stirring up in the, in the priest's heart, in the Levite's heart? What was stirring up? How dare you talk about this? Man, those good-for-nothing people, man. But this brother showed compassion. 
And you can even illustrate in verse 36, as Jesus concludes this parable that this man showed compassion or the Samaritan man showed compassion to this individual, we see that Jesus asked the question in verse 36. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell amongst the thieves? He was so upset and there was so much racial pride in his heart that he didn't even say the Samaritan. Notice how he answered the question, the person who showed mercy. He didn't even say the Samaritan, that's who, who conducted the good deed. He said the person who showed mercy. So Jesus says, go and do likewise as the Samaritan, the person that you think is belittled and doesn't, is not worth anything, go do as this Samaritan has done. That's the example that Jesus gave. And as we talked about the Samaritan, we see that the Zion of Ages in page 498, she comments and says, amongst the Jews, this question caused endless disputes. Who's your neighbor? They had no doubt as to the heathen and to the Samaritans. Samaritan lives matters, heathen lives matters, Jews lives matter. And never would the three ever intersect. But where should the distinction be made amongst the people of their own nation and among the different classes of society? Whom should the priest and the rabbi and the elder regard as his neighbor? And what was the response that Jesus gave? They spent their lives in a round ceremony to make themselves pure, contact with the ignorant and the careless multitude they thought would cause defilement that would require wearisome effort to remove where they regarded the unclean as neighbors. You see, this is the issue that Jesus was dealing with in his day. Racial pride amongst his own people. And as people were saying, Samaritan lives matter, heathen lives matter, Jew lives matter, Jesus says the gospel is the only remedy to try to unify all of these different sectors, all of these different groups, and unite them together. So what about the example found in, um, there in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 14? Let's go there. In Mark chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus was dealing with a big issue here as well. Let's read 13, Matthew, Mark chapter 10, beginning of verse 14. Let's read 13 for the context, Okay. Verse 13 of Mark chapter 10, then they brought little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Here it is that Jesus is with his disciples. He's, he's breaking bread, he's fellowshipping, and the children wants parts of Jesus. And what was the response of the disciples? What was the response? They rebuked the little children. In other words, children's lives don't matter but all they wanted was access to Jesus. So in verse 14, Jesus saw it and he was greatly displeased and he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of heaven. You see, when the disciples thought that the children's lives didn't matter, Jesus said, uh-uh-uh-uh, their lives matter as well. Well, what about the Canaanite woman? This lady was despised and hated not only by her own people, but by those who profess to be followers of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 15, we see in verse 21, Jesus' um, example of how he treated this Canaanite woman who was despised and hated by his people. In verse 29, then Jesus went out there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from the region and cried out of him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord. Son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now, Jesus always demonstrated the greatest tact. He never spoke a severe word, and he always showed love in his interactions, did he not? But notice what happens in verse 23. But he answered her not a word. 
I wonder why. Well, we'll see. He doesn't say a word, and the very next sentence we see his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. See, Jesus didn't say a word because he wanted to see how his disciples was going to react to this situation. The Canaanite woman is crying out to Jesus, and here it is that the Jews are in their sect, and they said, uh-uh, uh-uh, Canaanite lives don't matter, only Jews' lives matter. Jesus didn't utter a word. He wanted to see what his disciples were going to say. So he continues, and Jesus is trying to teach us a lesson here this morning. Verse 24, but he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Did you catch that? Who was in the lost condition? The house of Israel. The house of Israel is what needs to be saved. So he continues in verse 25, then she came and worshiped saying, Lord, help me. And finally, Jesus said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Listen, I came to save my people. I ain't come to save you. But notice the faith of this woman. Notice the faith of this Canaanite woman. And she says, Lord, even the little dogs eat the crumbs from which their master's table. Then Jesus answered and says, oh woman, oh great is your faith. Let it be to your desire. And immediately her daughter was relieved of the demon possession. We're seeing a pattern. As God's people was congregating together and trying to isolate themselves from everyone else, every single person who was being belittled or was being oppressed or was being that needed relief from their struggles, they didn't go to their own people. They didn't go to a government. They went to Jesus. They went to Jesus. But who was the one blocking people from coming to Jesus? His own people. So what, what about the woman at the well? This lady, life didn't really matter. She was a whore. She had multiple men she was sleeping with. She even came and, and coordinated the day to go to the well at a certain time where nobody's going to be at. She tried to hide herself. She was ashamed. And Jesus asked for water. And, and she says, what is a Jew talking to a woman like me for? What, what are you doing talking to me? Don't you know that there's tension between the two camps? Jesus says, all I want is water. And then we know the dialogue. We see that the Samaritan woman ultimately gives this man water. And Jesus then in return, as the children's story stated, water, living water for her to drink. And what was the response when she took a swig of that nice, cool living water? What was happening? I'm going to take a break here and drink my own water because I'm a little parched. But what was the response? She went and told everyone about the Jesus that she met. She told everyone, but see, what about the lepers' lives? Did leper lives matter to Jesus? They didn't get any treatment from the government. They was despised and, and betrayed by their own family and relatives, co-workers. But Jesus saw that lepers' lives mattered to him as well. Ooh, how about the Roman soldier? The very soldier that was oppressing his people. Did Jesus think that his life mattered? The answer is absolutely yes. The Roman soldier, listen, let's go, let's, let's go there, let's turn there. I'd rather have the Bible speak than me. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him. Uh-oh, not the police officer, not the one who just shot and killed all of these innocent lives as part of his job. This Roman soldier been not coming up to Jesus, asking for favors. But in verse 6, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. 
The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy. You should come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. For Lord, I am the chief of the, the police department. I have other police officers. When I tell them to go, they go. When I tell them to stay, they stay. When I tell them to do such and such, they do such and such. And when Jesus heard this, he said, and he marveled. He said, surely I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. See, Jesus saw that this Roman soldier's life mattered to him as well. And what the pattern that we see with all of these stories, none of these individuals went to their own sector, to their own sect, or went to the government. They went solely to Jesus Christ. Because he was the only one who can give them answers and relieve them from the oppression and the hurt that they was dealing with during that time. Not man, but Jesus. You see, in Matthew chapter 5, now we can go to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, we see that at beginning in verse 43, Jesus speaks the greatest sermon ever preached. We know it to be the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43, Jesus utters these words. He says, you have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Such radical words from a Jewish rabbi. You mean the people that oppress me, the people that stereotype me, the people who have prejudice against me, I have to love them? Jesus says, yes, that's the calling. He says it is easy for those to love who love you. It's so easy to love those who share the same political values as you. It's so easy to love those who share the same color as you. It's so easy to love those, but love those who hate you. Love those who persecute you. Love those who want nothing but harm and evil against you. Love those individuals. And then in verse 45, when we demonstrate this, so that you may be the sons and fathers in heaven, for he makes the sun rise of the evil and of the good and sends rain on the unjust and the unjust. Jesus concludes by saying, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete in me, just like the relationship between my father and I is complete and perfect, you will exercise this principle. But you see the deception that we are facing as a church, as a community, is that we think we're going to be able to unite by certain laws or bills. But brothers and sisters, that does not deal with the issue of the heart. Jesus is the only change that will occur and the only way that's going to happen if the love of God is dwelling in us. You see, when we read Revelation chapter 13, we see all of these prophetic events happening right before our eyes. We're seeing that the lamb-like beast and the beasts coming out of the sea and out of the land are uniting together all for the focus of persecuting God's people. And if those who do not exercise or worship the image that this beast has set up, then guess what's going to happen? You won't be able to buy, you won't be able to sell, and ultimately you'll be able, uh, you'll be put to death for placing your belief in Jesus and not your belief in this land like beast. 
And when you conclude that chapter, it's not a very hopeful chapter. Because in that chapter, it says that the whole world wandered after the beast. Everyone. Oh, but then there's Revelation 14. Revelation 14. John sees in prophetic vision a message that is able to unite not only the world, but to tell them about the everlasting good news to spread to all the world. John says that I saw another angel, a message flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, the everlasting good news, the good news that Jesus can relieve you from your oppression, the good news that Jesus will give you life and give it to you more abundantly, the good news that Jesus came to save, who saved those who persecute you and that he will execute judgment in his time. The good news and this message, listen to me, is the message that is supposed to be preached to every kindred, nation, tongue, and people. It's a message that unites. Saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Jesus has given us the remedy. He has given us the first, second, and third angel's message, a message that unites all people, whites, blacks, Asians, Filipinos, Hispanics, don't matter. That message is to unite all people. But you see in Mark chapter 3, verse 25, it states that if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. You may not say amen after what I have to say, but it's okay. I have to say it anyway. Many amongst our denomination are wondering why the church hasn't taken an official stance of all the injustices that are happening. Why isn't it the church speaking about the wrongs that are happening in certain communities? Well, how can we when we still have segregated conferences? How can we when every Sabbath morning we have black churches uniting, white churches uniting, Spanish people uniting, and we have all these different cultures, all these different churches, and all these different races coordinating together, but wanting the government, wanting the world, and wanting the head church to speak on the social injustices that you and I are practicing. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Do you understand how oxymoronic that is? For me to say I am a Christian, but I first identify myself as a black man or a Puerto Rican man before I identify myself as a Christian. Do you understand how idiotic that sounds when I say we want justice, but every Sabbath morning I'm not even worshiping with people of different race or different culture? See how the problem isn't the skin? It's the sin in our hearts, the racial pride that we have, brothers and sisters. And until the love of God penetrates into our hearts, we're going to continue to cry out injustice, to cry out about a government that is set up to oppress his people. We have to live up to the message that God has given to us first. To every kindred, nation, tongue, and people. Last I checked, when I go to heaven, there isn't going to be a black tree of life, a Hispanic tree of life, a white tree of life. It's only going to be one tree of life. And all the nations will gather around that tree. So until we have a taste of heaven here on earth, we're not going to prepare ourselves to go to heaven, brothers and sisters. A house divided cannot stand. 
And the remedy to the problem is the gospel and Jesus Christ alone. You see, brothers and sisters, my life matters. Not because of the color of my skin. Not because of a certain political party that I belong to. My life matters because of the blood that Jesus was willing to shed for me. My life matters because Jesus saw me rebelling against him. He saw me going against his law, against his word. And Jesus says that boy's life matters. Not because of the color of his skin, but because of the color of my blood. Amen. And it's by his blood that I am saved. It is by his blood that I am transformed. My life matters because of the price that Jesus was willing to pay for me. Your life matters because of the price that Jesus was willing to pay for you. You know what's interesting about the life of Christ? Is that as Jesus was going down the road to Calvary, here it is that Jesus is being mocked. He's being ridiculed. He's being despised and hated by all men. And as Jesus is going to the cross, the whole purpose of Jesus' mission was to save his people. Not from a government-oppressed system, but from their sins. You see, the Jewish nation, and I want you to listen to me very carefully what I'm about to say. The Jewish nation was willing and ready to rally around Jesus to relieve them from the Roman oppression that they was facing. They was ready to anoint him as a Messiah for the Jews. But you see in John 6 verse 66, Jesus says, listen, if you do not drink my blood or eat of my flesh, you have no parts of my kingdom. And in John 6 verse 66, it says that many turned away never to walk with him again. The Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah to relieve them from the Roman oppression. But when Jesus demonstrated the principles of his kingdom, and it wasn't to relieve the Jews from the Roman Empire, but to execute love, mercy, compassion, and justice to all men, that same government that the Jews wanted Jesus to deliver them from ultimately used that same government to crucify him. You see, the same system that oppressed the Jewish nation was the same system that the Jews cried out to to persecute their Savior. So we have to be very careful how much we want the government to tamper in with our decisions and our choices in life. Because the government will ultimately pass some bills and some laws to oppress the gospel. And I hope that you're, catching, you're following along with what I'm saying. We're crying out, oh, vote for this Republican, vote for this Democrat, vote for this mayor, vote. Listen, brothers and sisters, that was not the example of Jesus. He understood that ultimately the government was going to turn their back against him. We have to be very, very, very careful that we're not crying out to the government for help as a Christian society. This is why Jesus says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, if my people, if my people, that's a condition, my people who are called by my name, Christians, followers of the almighty God, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. 
You see, Jesus understands that we're still dealing with racial pride in our hearts. We're still fighting against each other about what sect you claim and what party you claim and all of these different things that divide us as a people. And Jesus says, listen, if you are called by my name, we'll just humble yourself, seek my face, turn from your wicked ways. The promise is this, then, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. And then Jesus says, I will heal their land. You want to see change in this country? Humble yourself. Pray. Seek his face. Ask him to guide you. Ask him to place his love in your heart for those who hate you and despise you and persecute you. As Jesus was on that cross, it was as if I took the whip and whipped him 39 times on his back when I depended on man to relieve me from my oppression. It was as if I took the crown of thorns and placed it on his head when I believed that a vote is going to change the, the condition of society. It's as if I spit in his face when I trust in man more than I trust in him. And as Jesus was hanging upon the cross, as his people, who he came to save, turned their backs on him and crucified him, as that same Roman government that was oppressing Jesus and crucified an innocent man. Jesus uttered those words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Lord, as I stretch out my hands, my life doesn't matter to me if my children can't dwell where you are. My life doesn't matter if your life is not connected to me. And don't get it twisted. Jesus understood he died just like the majority of the minorities die here in the nation today. With his arms up and his mother watching as it was killing the Son of Man on the cross. Jesus died the most blackest way possible. His hands up, innocently, as his mother was watching. For you see, John chapter 3, verse 16 tells us, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, not just one creed of people, but whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, my life matters because of the price that Jesus was willing to pay for me. My life matters because of the price he was willing to pay for you and for this church and for every individual here on planet Earth. We must awaken ourselves in the times that we're living in. Jesus has laid out the principles that we should live by. We should learn to do good. We should love our neighbors as ourselves. Those who persecute you and who want nothing but bad and evil against you, Jesus says, demonstrate mercy and compassion as I demonstrated mercy and compassion. Jesus understands what we are going through as a community. The problem is, is that we're seeking man's counsel to relieve us from the problems that Jesus has already solved by hanging on the cross. And this is why Paul states in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. 
let the change begin in our hearts. Let the love of God be dwelt in our minds, in our intercourse, in our actions. Let's start by breaking the racial division that is caused even amongst our church. Brothers and sisters, if we do not do it here, we will not partake in the kingdom that God has prepared for us. He died for you, but he also died for his enemies. He died for those who persecute you and ridicule you and only wish evil things against you. Would you search your hearts? Would you really truly ask God, Lord, allow me to stop seeing skin and stop allowing me to see the real issue, which is sin? Lord, allow me to see people in the color red, which is the blood that you was able to shed for them. Are you willing to do that this morning? We can cry out all the injustice. We can create hashtags, black lives, blue lives, purple lives, yellow lives. It doesn't matter. All lives matter because Jesus thought that everyone's life matters. Are you willing to do that today? If you're willing to make that stance, that starting today, as members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a church that God has given a prophetic message and vision, a church that God has called for, for a time such as this, to preach a message that will unite every kindred, nation, tongue of people. If today you want to ask God, Lord, place the love of your son in my heart that I may see no longer color, but I may see my brothers and sisters that has been bought by your blood. If that is your desire, I simply ask that you may stand. That today we are going to make a decision to stop the bickering amongst our people. God has always been the head and never the tail. And it's frustrating when we see that as a nation, though we see racial tensions, that even though we have the first African-American president, and regardless of whatever you may think about him, that's beside the point, but the world has united to say that we can separate ourselves through divisions, but yet the church has not. We need to break the racial tensions. We need to find it in our hearts for the love of God to dwell there. If my people will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal them and then I will heal their land. Let us pray. Father, we just want to thank you. Thank you for purchasing us with your blood. Father, I understand that living in this world full of sin is hard. Oh, Lord, when I see these injustices happen to my people, these injustices that happen to the individuals that are innocent, it boils up in my heart, dear Lord, to execute justice and vengeance. But you have said that vengeance is yours, says the Lord. You have called us to do good, to show mercy and compassion. Dear Lord, the example that you have set out was to break all the racial divisions all of the cultures that divided us as a people, and you demonstrated that every single individual on the planet Earth, life mattered to you. Lord, as a people, we acknowledge our guilt before you. We acknowledge that we have fallen short of your glory, of your character, of your standard that you have set up for ourselves. Father, you see the individuals who stood up to the appeal, and we're all standing because we realize our desperate need of you. Lord, we need you more now than ever before. 
And Lord, you're allowing these things to happen to, to show and to reveal to us what's truly in our hearts. And Father, forgive us for depending on man and, and law to change the condition of man's hearts. But allow us to demonstrate the gospel in our words, in our action, and even in our thoughts. Lord, we thank you so much for the grace that you have given to us, the, the love that you have demonstrated to us, that even while we was yet sinners, Father, you have died for us. Lord, thank you for giving me this message. Thank you for giving me the privilege to speak it. And Lord, I pray that this message will resonate not only in my heart, but in those individuals that are under the sound of my voice. Father, we want to go home. Oh, we want to go home. Father, we are tired of this sick, sinful world. Lord, we're tired of the unjust acts of killing and murders. Father, we are tired of all of the injustice and all of the, all of the crimes that we're seeing there, Father. We're, we're tired of the heartbreak and the pain. Lord, we want you to come. But Father, you first asked us to humble ourselves before you, to seek you. And Father, this is the first step in the process. Allow us to unite together under the banner of your cross that we may have a glimpse here on earth as what it will be like in heaven. Thank you, dear Father, for the timely message. Thank you for all that you have done for us. For we ask this in the name that is above all names, our Lord, our Savior, our friend, Jesus Christ. Amen.